So there are two ways to hear uh, most statements. Let's say I told you that we're going on a safari to Africa next year. A way to hear that statement would be awesome. That means I get to pet an elephant tusk. Or the other way to hear that statement would be terrible. That means I don't get to pet a great white shark in Australia, right? Or if I said, there's a mountain that we get to hike. Unbelievable. We get to see the view. Or you mean we've got to go all the way up there? One hears a statement as an opportunity. The other hears the statement as a limitation. Opportunity versus limitation. That's our introduction to the text this morning from Luke 13. If you have a copy of the Bible, if you would open it with me. Luke 13, beginning in verse 22, we'll read to verse 35. And in this passage, Jesus is going to present both a limitation and an opportunity. And I'm going to challenge you uh, to consider this text, the weight of the text, as more opportunity than limitation. In our passage this morning, Jesus is continuing to give strong teaching to those who are following him, particularly now on the way to Jerusalem. Verse 22, we have one of these little verses that's a bit of a seam. It's connecting what's come before with what's to follow. Luke giving us something of Jesus' travel itinerary. Verse 22, he went through one town and village after another teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. And that end is the most important thing. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's telling people what awaits him in Jerusalem, this hour when he will be glorified, when he'll be crucified, and then resurrected. Later, biblical writers are going to speak of Jesus knowing that his time had not come yet. It was not the appointed hour. So we get Jesus presented here somewhat meandering through towns and villages, though there's intentionality in his direction. The scene and the action is getting ready to pick up. If this, uh, if the Gospel of Luke were the movie Home Alone, this is the stage in the movie right now where Kevin is going to the store to get some laundry detergent and the highly nutritious microwave macaroni and cheese dinner right before the wet bandits are getting ready to break into the house, right? We've got preparation that's preceding the action that's getting ready to go down. And the book of Luke is going to pick up pace for us very soon in the chapters that follow with this hour that's to come. But during this kind of a lull in the story, we get teaching, we get instruction from Jesus on what it means to be a part of his kingdom, on what his followers could expect. And so verse 23, we'll read the entirety of the text. And as we've been doing in the previous weeks, we'll read it and then go back and talk through it. Verse 23. Lord, someone asked him, are only a few people going to be saved? And he said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because I tell you, many will try to enter and they won't be able once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us and he will answer for you. I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, but we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. 
There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, to share in the banquet in the kingdom of God. Note this. Some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. At that time, some Pharisees came and told him, uh, go get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, you go tell that fox, look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will complete my work. Yet it's necessary that I travel today and tomorrow and the next day, because it's not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. Verse 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather you, gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you're not willing. See, your house is abandoned to you. I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice the way Jesus frames this discussion. As Luke has presented throughout the Gospels, he often introduces his teaching on the heels of a question. And in this scene, in verse 23, he gets a limiting question. Are only a, a few people going to be saved? And here we might, as American readers, hear the language of saved and think something akin to praying a prayer to enter his kingdom. And there's something, certainly something to that. But here the word most closely parallels the idea of deliverance. Uh, are only a few people going to be delivered from the wrath that's going to come? You're talking about all this judgment. Are there, there are only a few people that are going to be delivered out from under that wrath? And he answers a limiting question with an opportunity. Four points. There is a door, but it's limit, It's narrow. There is time, but it's limited. There is an invite list, but it's unexpected. And there is an offer, but it's often rejected. First up, there is a door, but it is narrow. We see this in the first verse of our text this morning, where Jesus mentions the narrowness of this door, the kingdom availability. And this is not the only time Jesus uh, gives these words, these instructions. If you're familiar with the New Testament, with the gospel stories, you remember there's a scene like this uh, that Matthew actually places in the Sermon on the Mount, right at the beginning of Jesus' teaching. In fact, it's somewhat of the, the crescendo of the Sermon on the Mount. This is how the, the story ends. There we read in Matthew 7, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Be on your guard then against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit but a bad tree produces bad fruit. Good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, do many miracles in your name? And he will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So Jesus sets up the entrance to his kingdom, following him as one that is narrow, a narrow gate, a narrow door. I think these ideas are used somewhat interchangeably. And the image would have made great sense in a culture where cities are framed by big gates, where doors are prominent means of entering into hospitality. And like at perhaps a major concert or sporting event in our culture, you would look for the biggest gate, because the biggest gate would provide the best chance of entry. But Jesus warns that we're not going to enter the kingdom that way. His people will have to choose the narrow gate, the narrow door. How so? I think two primary uh, ideas are in view here. The door is narrow, number one, because salvation is only found through Jesus Christ. It's a narrow door because salvation is only found through Jesus. Here we could point attention to John 14, famous text, where Jesus says, that no one comes to the Father. Here again, we have this entry idea. No one comes to the Father except by Him. No one's going to get in in any other way. You you can't get to God except through Jesus. A visual for us might be, if you've ever been to a national park, particularly a national park that's defined by a significant mountain, And really, wherever you enter the national park, you can see the mountain in the distance, and everything in the park is arranged around the perspective that you have on this grand mountain. And because everything revolves around the mountain, and you can see the mountain from everywhere, you would be tempted to think that you can get up the mountain any way you want to. After all, it's the center of attention. But if you get closer to the mountain, if you've ever watched, for example, a a National Geographic story on scaling Mount Everest, you learn that though it is a massive mountain, you can't just saunter up any way you want. In fact, the mountain is incredibly protected, and there are certain prescribed paths that are only available at certain times, and if you want to get to the top, you, you have to follow the prescribed plan in the prescribed way. Even though it's very large, you don't just get there any way you like. Now, we're surely not climbing a mountain to God. We're not getting there in our own strength. But this visual does help us capture the challenge that Jesus is making here. God's a really big concept, grand in scope, like a massive mountain range. Even those who may not love God see him as something significant many times. And we think, well, surely... If there's something like that on the horizon, then I can get there any way that that I like. You'll often hear it pictured as all religions piecing together a little bit of the trail that is going to ultimately lead us to high-five at the top around the same God. We're going to make it. We're just going to make it different ways. But it's also not just religions that pitch this concept, How are we going to be saved? Well, by getting the right candidates in office, by economic stability, by law or business or uh, reshaping the Supreme Court. 
We don't find salvation there either. The salvation that Jesus pictures is found ultimately and solely through Jesus Christ. So when we sing in a minute to close our service, the song, In Christ Alone, we sing it with gusto because we recognize the truth of that title, that it is only in Christ that I am delivered from the wrath to come. It is only in Christ that I am saved. There is no other way. And secondly, the door is narrow because there's great cost to following Jesus. There's a singular entry and there's a narrow path. There's great cost to continuing to follow Jesus. This is the instruction that Jesus gives right at the beginning of this section back in Luke 9. When he sets his face to Jerusalem, he says, as they were traveling on the road, someone says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus told them, foxes have dens and the birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then he said, follow me, Lord. Let me first go bury my father. But he said, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. And another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But let me first go and say goodbye to those in my house. But Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You'll only find salvation through Jesus and you'll only be saved by continuing to persevere in Jesus. We're saved by Jesus, and we're continually saved, continually delivered, as we stay true to Jesus, as he holds us in his love, and we persevere in faith and dependence on him. That's a narrow door, friends. And it would be easy for us to end with the limitation of the narrowness of that door. But let me attempt to gently shape your perspective. It's a narrow door, but there is a door. Hyper-focus on the narrowness of the door, and you miss the beauty of the opportunity that God has provided I'd imagine Noah would not have spent a ton of time griping about the narrowness of the door that saved him. Yeah, it was a really narrow path for salvation. Build a boat, enter two by two, let God shut you in. But Noah was saved from judgment because God provided a door. If the path prescribed seems ridiculously narrow to you, Let me invite you this morning to consider that God has provided a way whereby you could be saved, and he did not have to. He didn't have to give a narrow door, but he gave one. So consider Jesus. Read the gospel accounts. Talk to a Christian. See if Jesus is who he says he is. Because if he is, then rather than hyper-focusing on the narrowness of the door, you can walk through Faith in Christ. Secondly, there is time, but it is limited. There is time, but it is limited. I'm not going to belabor this point because Jesus has pointed our attention to it in previous paragraphs. But verses 23 and 20, uh, 24 and 25 demonstrate that a time will come when the homeowner will shut that door. And after that time, the text presents this vivid picture. There are going to be people knocking on a locked door, on a shut door. And at that time, it's going to be too late. 
How is the time limited? Two points we've mentioned in previous sermons. One, the time is limited because you will die. The time is limited because you will die. And this passage from, uh, from Hebrews gives us some sense of the severity of that. It's appointed for people to die once, and after that to face judgment. So there's a, there's a clear order in God's economy. There's a clear means by which he's, he's working through the process. You're, you're going to die once. You're not going to die multiple times. You're not going to die once and then have a chance to come back, kind of fix the things that you messed up, and then make a different decision and then die again. You're not going to die once and then have this long, long, long period of time where you kind of make up for all the things that you did and then face judgment. You're going to die and face judgment. This is the divine order. Death, then judgment. And since no one knows when they'll die, God's established a time when we're going to be judged after we die. The plan now is to make the right decision while we have the limited time. It may have been a long time since you guys took the little uh, color, you know, number two pencil color in the circle kind of test. Uh, but remember that growing up and you, you color, again, I'm aging myself with the, the group here, but you color in and you hit the allotted time, 60 minutes, and, and the teacher says, all right, pencil's down. And, you, you know, the temptation is I want to uncover, uh, erase C and color in A. Well, no, I mean, the, the time, the allotted time is up. You're not amending your decisions at that point. And secondly, the time is limited because Jesus is going to return. There's another limitation built into this scheme. Jesus will return. And the day of the Lord's coming is going to be, as the writer of Scripture say, like a, a thief in the night. Jesus in Matthew 24, as lightning comes from the east and flashes as far from the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. This time of year gives us vivid opportunity to see that. Bright and clear day that turns in a moment and lightning flashes and the storm rolls in. Luke 12, the preceding chapter. You should be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus' return is a defined time when God, the divine homeowner, will shut the door. Your death or the return of Jesus will be the end. And at that time, the decisions that you've made to trust in Christ through faith will tell the tale of your eternity. If you are not ready, there will be no time at that point to change your mind. But opportunity. Time is limited, but there is time. If we hyper-focus on the limitation of the time, we miss out on the availability of the time right now. You're not dead. Jesus hasn't returned. Millions of people have died since Jesus uttered these words. Jesus has not yet returned. You have the glorious privilege of breathing in another breath in this moment. So there is time. What are you doing with the time that you're allotted? either acknowledging the grace of God to give you this moment and turning to him for salvation, or as Romans 2 says, despising the riches of the kindness of God. Third, there is an invite list 
but it is unexpected. There's an invite list, but it's unexpected. Here the illustration shifts from a door that you're entering to a party, and this party image is going to go with us for a couple of sermons now. Back to our passage of this morning, just because it's been a moment since we've read it, verse 26. You will say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets, but he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you're from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. They will come from the east and the west and the north and the south to share in the banquet of the kingdom of God. Note this, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. If we were preaching a sermon just on that singular paragraph, the main point that Luke is making there is proximity to Jesus does not equal relationship with Jesus. Proximity, physical proximity to Jesus does not equal relationship with Jesus. They say we've been all around you. It's a strong teaching in a culture that prizes hospitality. To have people in your home, to share a meal. This was to have a relationship. Surely we're pals now. And surely Jerusalem and its people, the Jewish nation, would have thought to experience salvation because they are insiders. If anyone's on the invite list, it's them. And even now, the people that are walking in Jesus' day, of all people, he picked this time and this place to send his son. So of all the Israelites that have ever lived, we, we got the Messiah walking among us. We're insiders, so surely we're there. And Jesus warns them, just because you're close to me physically doesn't mean you get a pass on this. You still have to decide. You still have to turn to me in faith. These are the insiders, the first people on the invite list. Look at the names that are mentioned there in verse 28. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the great prophets of old. I bet you, if you're married, you remember this super fun conversation you had um, a couple of days after you proposed where you started to brainstorm with your soon-to-be wife about the invite list to your wedding. That time when you start to put a ridiculous price tag on the head of every human that you love, right? The full weight of two chicken fingers and some chips is going to cost us roughly $57 per person to host you. So you create uh, these categories. This is the necessary invite list. You know, grandma's got to be there. Then there's the obligatory invite list. My cousin's fourth boyfriend in the last two months, right? She's kind of got to come. And then there are people on the cut line where you're sizing up, is it worth $57 or an extra day on our honeymoon to have this person come to our wedding? Verse 28 mentions the expected invite list for the banquet of salvation. No one's surprised like your grandma showing up at your wedding to see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets on that list. But here's the rub. Many of the people who are listening to Jesus teach think they're number five or six on that list. Well, surely we're shoe-ins to the wedding banquet. We're going to be there merely because of our pedigree. And Jesus 
bust their bubble two, two ways. Some of you will not be there, first way. He calls this group, he doesn't merely say like you're on the cut line. He said you're evildoers. You're going to be cast out. It's the type of contrast we see built into a number of the coming passages where those who are judged uh, are those who, who, uh, those who are saved, they, they can see each other. There's this perspective being given there. There's some who are cast out, and there are some who are saved, who are invited, and they're looking in on one another. And here the evildoers are pictured as responding with weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you're summarizing that, would you? It's a picture of regret, right? Weeping, gnashing teeth. I weep and I gnash my teeth when someone else is experiencing something good that I missed out on. Or when I I know that I should have done something different and I'm experiencing the consequences of my poor choices. And notice here that this is pictured as a real place with real judgment in contrast to real people receiving a real reward. And then to flip, some who are there, you're not going to expect. So some of you who think you're on the list, you're not going to be there. And there are going to be some people there who you're not going to expect. Verse 29 and 30. People from the east, west, north, and south. People from all over. And then the the clear uh, statement that Jesus has made almost proverbially throughout the Gospels. Some who are first are going to be last. Some who are last are going to be first. Here the picture is likely of the Gentile inclusion into God's saving activity. Some of you who think your shoe-ins are going to be cast out. Some of those who are literally defined as not you, right? Those who are thought to be out are going to be welcomed in. They're going to celebrate at the salvation banquet like a cast of misfits in The Greatest Showman. There is an invite list, but it is unexpected. If you hyper-focus on the exclusivity of the invite list, you miss out on the glorious privilege that some of you and me who have no business being there will be there, get to show up. And the glorious privilege that it is not your national pedigree, it is not your heritage, it is not your access, it's not how well your parents did at training and discipling you, it's not your exposure to church, it's not whether your past squares with my past and how we size up. It's all given by the grace of God. Salvation through Christ. And you, regardless of who you are, can come to Him in faith. And then lastly, there's an offer, but it is often rejected. There is an offer, but it is often rejected. This is the passage beginning in verse 31, where the Pharisees come and they tell Jesus, hey, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. And then he responds with this real sharp tone. You go tell that fox, look, I'm driving out demons and I'm performing miracles and I'm going to keep doing this work. You're not going to stop me here. The Herod mentioned here is not the same Herod that wanted to kill the kids when Jesus uh, was born. We have uh, one who is appointed his son, one who's appointed to lead kind of a, a fourth of the empire of the day. And he's really appointed there as a prop from Rome. 
So when Jesus says, you tell that fox, he's not encouraging Herod's cunning nature. He's making a jab at him. You go tell that unclean animal, that propped up one, that he has no power. He doesn't intimidate me one bit. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to die for the people whom I came to save. And like a prophet, I will be killed for these words, the words of coming judgment. And yet, even in this moment, Jesus says, I've extended an offer to you. I've, I, I've longed to gather you. It's a beautiful picture. You go tell that fox. It takes a jab. And then we get this tender, loving picture in verse 34. I want to gather you together like children, like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. There is an offer, but it is often rejected. And it is often rejected from the very people that should take advantage of the offer. But friends, this morning, there is still an offer. If we hyper-focus on the rejection of the offer, we miss out on the joy that an offer could be extended at all. That we could be gathered by God, the one whom we've offended, as a parent would gather her kids, as a hen would gather her chicks. This isn't a God who longs to flex his muscles and pound people into the dust. This is a God who longs to gather people together to protect them and nurture them in his love. So this morning, Luke 13, 22 through 35, preaches two sermons to us, and both of them are correct. First, there's a sermon that focuses on the limitation. And that sermon goes like this. The door is narrow. The time is limited. The invite list is unexpected. And the offer is often rejected. But friends, there is sermon two, and it is equally correct. It is not a sermon of limitation, but a sermon of opportunity. There is a way. There is time. There are people. And God extends an offer to you, to me. So what do we do? What do you do with the reality of the limitation and the opportunity that's presented this morning? Look back in verse 24. The text really gives us one exhortation, one thing to do. Verse 24, make every effort to enter. Depending on your translation, uh, you may have the substitute word there, strive. Strive to enter. It's the language of agonizing effort. It's terms that Paul's going to use to describe him running hard the path that God has for him, finishing the race that God has marked out. It's what Jesus is going to personify in the garden and the tomb. This isn't strive to figure out a way to earn God's favor. It's talking about striving to pursue the way that God has purposed. It's not an attempt to earn God or to figure out another path, but it's 
agonizing effort to pursue the path that God has determined. It's probably my steady answer to the question, what's my, mo- my least appealing way to die? If you ask me that question, I would say to be trapped in a car underwater. Drowning would be enough, but drowning while watching the water fill up around me and being unable to get out would be terrifying. Now imagine if you were in that situation and you were told that one, jaw, one door is ajar. That the system is rigged for you to have a path of deliverance. What would you do? This is ridiculous. Why in the world wouldn't somebody set up the system so all the doors were ajar? I mean, it seems so strange that a door would be cracked. Why wouldn't there be like an exit hatch under the seat that if I pulled this lever, I would go out? No. You would strive to find that door. You would desperately pursue the means of deliverance that was made available to you. Now imagine even more, I'm mixing my metaphors here, but if we were in one of those breakout room settings and you could phone a friend and the other that was seeing what you were doing, and you phoned the friend and the friend said, hey Matt, it's the rear passenger side door that's available. You don't even have to look at the other ones because that's the door you would desperately pursue the door that you're told would lead to your salvation. So friends, God has given you grace this morning to hear from the loudspeaker that he has rigged the system for you to have a door of deliverance. So take it. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks that in your grand kindness you have created a world with such glorious opportunity for us to be saved. That the wrath that we know our sin deserves has been credited to Christ that through the work that he will soon accomplish that in, in the story of the scriptures in Jerusalem that He paid the price for sins of his people. That we can be forgiven. That we can be saved from the coming wrath. And we know that all of that is testimony to your grace. You made a way possible. You created a door. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is our sole hope in this life and in the life to come. And we ask that in your grand divine wisdom that you would grant salvation to anyone in this room who is grappling up a mountain of their own will, their own means of pursuing deliverance. Would they this morning look to you and be saved? Would they take the door that you've made available? And we thank you that we who are outsiders get to be on the invite list to the grand banquet that is to come because of what Christ has done. As we sing to that end, would you stir our affections for Jesus? We ask his name. Amen. And church, let's stand. What a beautiful way to end the service.